go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts today. I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. And uh, the other half of the team today is... I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And Chris, uh, we have uh, we have a guest, someone who was, uh, as we're recording this, recently here visiting us in person, but now she's back through the magic of the internet. Absolutely. We were very honored to host astronaut Nicole Stott here for our space day this year. And Nicole is joining us uh, for this episode of The Green Dot. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some time with us today. My pleasure. Nice to be back, even if uh, virtually. Absolutely. This is, uh, this is awesome. Good to get to, to chat a little bit in a relaxed uh, atmosphere here. Um, one of my favorite questions I always like to ask people, just because you always get a really... Uh, uh, interesting answer to it is uh, what first really kind of got you into aviation? What got you inspired to want to fly? Uh, my parents. Uh, I think that, yeah, easy answer. Um, we spent a lot of time hanging out at the local airport in Clearwater, Florida, where uh, my mom discovered if we wanted to see my dad, <laughs> that's what we needed <laughs> to do. And so as kids, we, we just basically hung out at uh, Clearwater Executive where my dad was building and flying small experimental aircraft. Yeah, that, got in my that's blood. That's super cool. Yeah, that sure <laughs> resonates with us, obviously. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Was there a point along that journey that it, it kind of really resonated with you that that's what you wanted to do, uh, to fly or, or, or go into space? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could remember exactly, but I think I just loved it all along. Like being out at the airport was fun, even as little kids, you know, even when you weren't flying all the time, just that, I don't know, that kind of environment around you and, um, and aviation people, as you guys know, are fun and they want you to be involved with what they're doing, you know? So when my dad was working on his airplane, if we were there, we got to help and, and I knew I wanted to fly myself, but I wanted to know how things fly. And I think that's what really took me down this path to, uh, you know, studying aeronautical engineering. And then while I was there figuring out, man, if you want to know how airplanes fly, why wouldn't you want to know how rocket ships fly? And the space shuttle program was getting up and running again after I graduated from college. And it just seemed like this natural path as an engineer to go there, to be working on that space shuttle flying machine, you know? And... And while I was there is where I discovered that I might want to consider the astronaut role, too. Because, honestly, even after having watched the moon landing as a six- or seven-year-old, where you know that's a really extraordinary thing, and I thought, wow, that's really cool, you know, that people are getting to do that. But I thought, oh, that's other special people. You know, why would they ever pick me? And, uh, and finally decided I'd, I'd, I'd consider it. And had people that encouraged me to apply, and very thankful that... You know, after the second interview, they decided to to accept me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, you you mentioned uh, going to school for aeronautical engineering. Is that correct? Yep. And you went to uh, Embry Riddle. I did. Is that right? So, um, it, it, you addressed this a bit. So you graduated. It seemed like sort of NASA was the place to go. Were you were you looking at a lot of different alternatives, or was that really just your focus? You said, "I've graduated. That's where I want to be." Well, where I really wanted to be was at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, and 
uh, when, I, when I did graduate, they were on, NASA was on one of their hiring freezes, and I got the letter, you know, if we ever come off this freeze, we might call you kind of thing. And so um, I had applied to other places, and it's funny because at the time I really, even with the NASA side of it, I thought, oh, I want to work as a structural design engineer. I want to really get down into the nitty-gritty of how these parts for airplanes or spaceships are made and how we can maybe make them better and stuff like that. And I got a really great job at Pratt & Whitney down in West Palm Beach doing just that on really advanced like turbine blade kinds of designs. And while I discovered that, you know, I enjoyed doing that kind of thing, I think it wasn't for me. And I became very thankful that there are people that love doing that. I just knew I it was like being out at the airport. I wanted to have my hands on the hardware, be with the people that were working with the hardware. And so thankfully about a year and a half after starting at Pratt & Whitney, uh, I got the call from the folks at at NASA at Kennedy Space Center, and they were bringing in a whole slew of new young engineers to get the space shuttle program up and running again after the Challenger accident. So I have to ask, I think for so many of us who either uh, had dreams of going to NASA or even tried to go, uh, you know, to get into NASA, what's it like to get that acceptance letter or acceptance call? That has to be a pretty special moment when that happens. Well, I think both times it was really special. Getting the call that they wanted me to come to work as an engineer at Kennedy Space Center. I mean, I never thought it would happen. You know, I thought, okay, hiring freeze, I'll never hear from them again. And, you know, I'll have to, you know, make my way some, some other way, right? And um, so that was really exciting. And that was, that was 10 years of working up close and personal with not just the hardware, but the, with the people that really felt like the care and feeding of those spacecraft was their responsibility. And then, you know, once I got the call for the astronaut office, I mean, I didn't, I, mean, I honestly, I, it, it's still, I pinch myself, right? And that was a day when, in the history of my flying, that day, I got the call in the morning, and then I was heading off to go do my check ride for my instrument rating on that day. <laughs> and... I'll tell you what, the, the, um, the check ride guy, I mean, I had this smile on my face the whole time. You know, and I was told I couldn't tell anybody that I'd just gotten selected for the astronaut office, right? And so he's looking at me like, who is this goofball, you know, with this <laughs> smile on her face coming? Mostly, usually people are looking a little scared and worried and stuff. No kidding. And thankfully, I passed. And I told him, I'm like, okay. You know, I, I know I look like I'm crazy today with this smile on my face, and I'll tell you sometime later. I'm not allowed to tell you today. And then made a point of calling him <laughs> afterwards. He's like, oh, I get it. But, yeah, that was, that was, that was a fun day. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. I mean, I remember the instrument check ride as being the, far and away the most stressful check ride oh my I gosh. ever did. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine sitting there thinking, you know, well, if I screw up, I'm still an astronaut. Right, right. I, that's not really what you're thinking. For me, I'm thinking, well, if I screw up, then, well, that, you know, never mind. I'll, I, I don't know what I'll do. But I but, must have had good instructors before then to be able to get through it that way. Yeah. <laughs> in, in that spirit. That's, that's amazing. So, uh, so you said you'd been in with NASA and sort of the engineering side for about 10 years before mm -hmm. you switched over. Did I hear that correctly? Right. That's, uh, so you were, you were well established, firmly entrenched. Like you said, you, you knew everybody. So what was, uh, you get your acceptance. 
then you know what happens on on day one or day two do you go into some <laughs> training right away or you you say you've been accepted now hurry up and wait well it was you know you everybody gets the call you know for the class that um that they've selected and in, in our case it was in the year 2000 and there were 17 of us we were the 18th group of nasa astronauts that they were bringing in and so it's usually it's usually about a month uh, ahead of like we got the call on you know that historic July 20th day right the moon landing day oh wow and and then we didn't report to work as astronauts until later in August so it was about a month um before showing up as this new class and and I had already, I had already two years before that transitioned to working at Johnson Space Center in Houston, which of course is where the astronaut office is too. So um, I didn't have to move again, but you had all these new people coming in and, and really the first couple days are just like, you know, a little like orientation. Here's where you are. Here's what you're going to be doing. Um, like the, you know, the lowdown on who the people are and stuff. And, and then one of those days is, uh, is your class picture, which I remember being so funny because, you know, none of us really knew each other. We came from all these different places around the country and um, we're kind of, you know, you're nervous, you know, meeting each other and stuff. And you're sitting in this picture that's going to be this, you know, on the one hand, it's going to be the formal capture of this group, you know, as this new class of astronauts. And then on the other hand, I brought everybody like these little bug antenna and we had these little sunglasses on to wear to do kind of a goofy class picture because our our nickname was the Bugs. The class before us had named us that. And so when I show the picture of our class, I never show the official looking straight ahead kind of, you know, formal shot. I always show the one of us with goofy faces and rolling up our sleeves and pants and looking like Bugs. Awesome. <laughs> well, as you get into uh, astronaut training, can you tell us some of the um, some of the things you had to do, some of the courses, some of the the actual physical training? Yeah, it's and it's really fun. I mean, and you do you get you get started right away, um, right into a lot like going back to school. You know, we learn all about the systems on the spacecraft you might fly, and so for me that was the space shuttle and. And the Soyuz spacecraft, and of course the International Space Station, which was, you know, just beginning construction at that point. And all of us were hopeful in one way or another that we'd get to fly there someday. And then you start Russian language training, which I will tell you was the most difficult thing to me about all of astronaut training was learning to speak Russian. And and we do that because. The Russian Soyuz was one of our ways of getting to and from the station, but it has always been a, a rescue vehicle for us. And so it's operated completely in Russian, the panels, the procedures, the communication with the ground. So you have to be fluent enough to manage that. And then, you know, things like spacewalk training and how to fly the big, you know, white looking crane, the robotic arm on the shuttle in the station and how to fly the space shuttle. And, and then in parallel with that, you get to do things like fly in T-38 trainer jets and go on the zero-G airplane. And um, there's nothing that I remember being like, oh my gosh, I got to do that to train to be an astronaut. 
it was all really incredible. Now, when you would do things like uh, you mentioned spacewalk training, EVA training, are you doing that in the big uh, the big tank that we see pictures and, and video of? Yeah, for spacewalk training, that's the two main places that we do that are in that that ginormous swimming pool. They call it the neutral buoyancy lab, and it's I mean it's like two hundred feet long, a hundred feet wide, forty feet deep, with the most crystal clear water you have ever seen. I mean, you go diving in this pool and it's all, you, you look, and you're like, you don't even notice that there's water around you. It's so clear. And inside that pool, there's a mock-up of the space station. And yeah, so you get into the 300-pound suit and then they lift you in a crane into the water and try to get you mutually buoyant. And that, that training, I would have to say, was the most physically challenging thing I've ever done, where you're in that suit working against the drag of the water. You've got the pressure in the suit. So every move of your hands is against like four PSI, you know, a delta pressure of four um, PSI inside the gloves. And you do that for like six and a a half hours (laughs) as a training run. At a time? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, they try to get it as close to what you might do out on a, you know, like a full duration spacewalk, which is usually six, you know, six, six and a half hours. And yeah, so that's definitely one of those pleasure is the pain kind of things where <laughs> unless you are really hurting yourself, you need to have a smile on your face and, and get through it. Yeah. No whiners allowed. You know, it's the whiners with the circle and the, the cross mark through it. Um, and, um, but it was fantastic to be able to do that. And then the other place for spacewalk training in a much more comfortable environment is with a headset and gloves in a virtual reality lab. And they have a really high fidelity model of the space station so that you can, you know, you can crawl around on it and see things in a way that you wouldn't in the pool where cables might be hanging down and gravity might be having an effect on stuff. You can see it much better in like the configuration that you could expect in space. And uh, yeah, that's awesome training. And the people that make those spacesuits, ILC Dover, just incredible. The, the expertise they have and the, the, the suits that they build, really awesome. Well, you know, and one of the things you, I wanted to touch on you shared with me is while you were doing this and, and while you uh, actually uh, also flew missions, um, you're also a mom. So you would, you would be able to share this with your son, correct? Yeah. And that was great. You know, I think about it like, when I was a kid and hanging out at the airport and how much I enjoyed that and just being exposed to something that seemed different, you know, that wasn't the norm for everyone. And my husband and I tried to do that with our son too, with Roman. And so certainly things that we enjoyed like scuba diving and flying, we'd get him out for that. But also for the work that I was doing, you to, to, to get him out to the training sessions when, you know, when I was going to do a run in the pool, he'd come out and watch, watch me suit up and get lifted into the pool and then maybe watch for a little while on the, the video monitors to see what was going on. Or when we'd be in the orange launch and entry suits practicing how to bail out of the shuttle or how to use that equipment, he'd come out. And, you know, anything really that was simulators, astronauty stuff, you know, not in, he probably would not have been too pleased if I invited him to come to the classroom to learn about the electrical system or something like that. <laughs> but um, 
But anything, you know, you got the cool suits on doing astronauty stuff. But it was important to us that he know what I was doing, but that he also know the people I was working with, what the missions were about. And I mean, he was seven when I flew the first time and then nine the second time. And I mean, the kid got it. And holy moly, he could land that space shuttle simulator too. my my um, commanders were impressed with his talent as a young child. And I think it's fared him well as he now is working on his private pilot's license and hopefully we'll have that soon. Oh, that is absolutely fantastic. That's really cool. Um, So you're doing your training, you're doing uh, both classroom stuff and cool astronauty stuff Mm -hmm. uh, to borrow your term, which I will now use every day. Okay. Um, (laughs) The, uh, what's, uh, uh, what's the time frame like? How long before (laughs) you've been selected, you start training and then they say that you, you are now mission mission ready. So what's that time frame like? And then I want to talk where, you know, Chris, I want to talk to you about how the selection process goes before <laughs> an actual flight. <laughs> it's all a mystery really. But, um, <laughs> but the, so when you get selected into the astronaut office, like they say, Hey, come, come to Houston and work with us as an astronaut. Um, the first couple years are what they call astronaut candidate training or ASCAN training, which, um, uh, is really all of this stuff we're talking about, getting you know familiar with the different centers and what you know NASA does, um, the initial the initial training on the systems and spacewalks and stuff like that. And then at some point they wave their hand over you like, okay, you know you know thou art an astronaut now, even though you haven't flown in space, which is kind of weird. But all that really means is that you're assignable to a mission. you've you've successfully completed, the training that they consider to be, um, you know, the criteria for making you uh, qualified to fly on a mission. That doesn't mean you're going to get one anytime soon. Uh, And when we were selected in 2000, we were initially told it would probably be three to five years before our first flight, just because of the number of people in the office, the number of missions we had, you know, the flights and things, the whole manifest, it would just work out that way. And then sadly, in you know, 2003, we had the Columbia accident, which then essentially doubled that time. And so um, by the time we got back flying the shuttle again and then reassigning people, uh, the folks in my class, the, the shortest was eight and a half years. It was eight and a half to 10 years before people had their first flight. Wow, that's, so, that's remarkable. Yeah, now, are, and are you it's doing... worth the wait. Oh, pardon me. Are you doing uh, recurrent <laughs> training throughout this to sort of stay stay sharp? Are you getting you are. the simulator you're as well doing, You're doing just kind of like you do when you're flying. You know, you have to, you know, do your check rides and your flight reviews. And, you know, so somebody feels comfortable that you're still qualified to do what you're um, allowed to do. And, um, and, yeah, and then you build on that too, of course. You know, as new procedures come out or new equipment, you're learning about that too. And, and, you know, and during that time, the space station, you know, was growing. So we were learning more about that. And then, of course, <clears throat> you also, through the astronaut office, are working, are working like a job uh, as a CAPCOM, you know, so in the Mission Control Center, communicating with the crews on board or helping develop procedures for how to fly the arm or working as um, crew support for launch and landing activities or even things with the advanced programs, like um, 
you know, if a new vehicle was being developed or a new program to go, say, back to the moon or something, they'll have a contingent of astronauts um, supporting those things as well. So it's kind of a mix of training and job stuff. Um, and for me, as a NASA person who had worked at Kennedy Space Center before that as an engineer, and then had a couple years at Johnson Space Center as a flight engineer on the shuttle training aircraft, um, I was already really familiar with working as a NASA person. And so um, while I would have much rather flown sooner, you know, nine years didn't seem that, that bad because I was excited about the work I was already doing. I knew the process, the people, and I was getting to do other stuff on top of it that I never would have, you know, as, you know, as a straight NASA engineer and that the, you know, that the astronaut role offered me. So the flight seemed always like it would be a bonus because there's never a guarantee that you'll get assigned to a space flight. So along the way as you're training, did you ever um, have the opportunity to use, like, um, for lack of a better term, like veteran astronauts or folks who have flown as resources to talk to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're working side by side with them every day. And within the training sessions, they usually would have an experienced astronaut um, providing some guidance through that. You know, somebody who'd done a spacewalk before would be helping introduce you to what it's like to get in the suit and work in the suit and be in space or fly in the robotic arm. There were always uh, experienced astronauts um, supporting that. And that would have been part of their job. You know, so somewhere along the way, I was doing that as well. Part of my job was to be a person that was helping the new people who hadn't flown yet or used this hardware yet know how to do that. Uh, it's one of the best parts of the job actually. And, and then you can pick their brains on all kinds of stuff, like what was it like to float? What was it like to look out the window? You know, what did you bring with you? You know, I mean, stuff like that, that, you know, nobody else is going to be able to tell you besides somebody that's done it before. Now, as you were uh, waiting for that, that first flight, that first mission, can you talk a little bit about the selection process? Is this something, I, I, are you overtly competing for a slot? Are you campaigning for it? Are you applying? Or is it you're ready and when they have a role for that's right for you, they will, they will tap you on the shoulder? Yeah, it's more like the, the, the latter. Um, there's no applying for it. Um, we all are doing the training in the different areas like spacewalking and robotic arm flying and systems and science and all of these things. You're getting trained across the board for that. And the expectation is that you would be prepared to take on any task in any one of those areas. And, and of course, there are going to be people that are, you know, that just perform better in the pool um, for spacewalk and then others. And so, you know, they're all looking at you, they're looking at you that way. And, but it's, I never felt like I was overtly competing. Like I was having to you know, oh my gosh, I had to run faster. You know, there was, I never felt like a negative vibe about that at all. In fact, I felt like, uh, like my colleagues were there to lift me up. You know, like we all really wanted to help each other be the best we could be. If that, I don't hope that doesn't sound like wacky or something, but, um, and I, I think that's what makes good crewmates too, is that you're, you know, you're not wanting to push anybody else down. So you get some slot. You're wanting to make sure you have the best team you can, have to be successful at the mission so you want everyone to succeed and uh but it is a mystery i think how all of that 
lays out on whatever little manifest kind of shuffleboard that they're doing to assign people to flights. And, you know, before I retired, I actually had the chance to be part of that team, you know, picking people for flights or picking people even to be parts of new, you know, members of a new astronaut class. And I still feel like it's a little mystery <laughs> how it all works. So when you finally get assigned to a flight and you know you're going to fly, um, how does that First off, how does that feel? What is, what is that like to get notified about this? Well, if you thought the smile was big about getting the call just to be part of the astronaut office, the smile like stretches around the back of your head for the, you know, the one when you get assigned to a flight. And, um, and then you figure, you know, you find out who your crewmates are. And, you know, for me, that was really exciting. I loved everybody that I flew with. And in my first flight, I flew to the station on, uh, as part of a space shuttle crew and then got dropped off on the station and, um, you know, was up there for two expedition crews uh, on station and came home on a different space shuttle mission. And so I had like this mix of, you know, four crews as part of my, my first mission. And, and it, was, it was awesome. I mean, I, I could have spent any amount of time with any of these people in space. It was so much fun. And, and then you start training with them. And for a space station flight, you know, unlike a shuttle flight where the bulk of your training is done in the U.S., in Houston, um, very few trips out, you know, out of the country or even out of Texas to go um, train. And uh, on a space station flight, you know, there's five international space stations agencies participating, 15 countries, you know, as part of that being represented. And so I went into about three years of training for that first mission that was back and forth between Russia and the U.S., Germany, U.S., Canada, Japan, uh, you know, back and forth in preparation for that first mission. Wow. That's incredible. That is amazing. So uh, I'm thinking about the whole timeline now. So what is that complete range from (laughs) the day you start at, at NASA in engineering uh, to your first flight? So I started as an engineer with NASA in um, 1988, and my first space flight was 2009. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I was a nine-year, you know, from the time I was selected to be an astronaut, it was nine years, which was, sure. you know, like on the early end of our class getting flights. And I was assigned to that flight you know, Nicole, thou, thou shalt fly on this mission in 2006. So it was a three-year training flow for that long-duration space flight. Space shuttle missions were about a year, you know, a year's worth of training in advance of, of the flight itself. But station, um, during that time frame, you had to go through like a whole backup flow, and then your prime, prime training uh, would pick up. And they've reduced that now. I think they got it down to a little less than two years for, you know, when you're assigned to a space station flight. I think they could get it down even more myself. But, um, and, uh, yeah, but you want to train in, your, in the partner countries, too. You want your, your international crew members to come to the U.S. You want to be together, you know, learning how to do this thing and, um, you know, prepared to fly with each other. Uh, in, in hindsight, it seems like a really long time. I mean, what's what's strange to me now that is that it's been longer, what is it, I flew in 2009, so that's what, 12 years ago? 
So that's longer now since the flight than what I waited for the flight. (laughs) (laughs) In the astronaut office, at least, you know, which is crazy to me. Wow. Well, so I have to ask, the day finally arrives and you're going to you're going to launch. Can you walk us through a little bit about what what's that day look like and walk us through launch? Well, you're um, so I launched both times from Kennedy Space Center on a space shuttle. And um, so you've been down at Kennedy Space Center in quarantine at what we call crew quarters for uh, about 10 days. And um, and the day of launch itself, you know, depending on what time of day the, the launch is, you've been sleep shifting throughout those 10 days and getting ready for that timing. Um, but the nor- it's kind of a normal routine. You know, you get up, you um, have uh, some medical checks. You know, they take you over and, you know, make sure you don't have a fever. You know, nothing's going on with you that would keep you from, you know, wanting to, to fly or for them for for them allowing you to fly, I guess. I think even if you were sick, you'd still want to go. Um, and then uh, usually have a meal together. There's 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 some traditional photos you'll see. You know, the crew sitting around the table for for breakfast or lunch or dinner, whatever it might be, in preparation. And then there's a cake cutting ceremony, and uh, and then it's just really getting into the you know the process of getting suited up getting out to the van to take you to the launch pad, getting to the launch pad, um, admiring your vehicle from the base of the pad. I mean, really taking a few minutes to walk. It's kind of like walking around your airplane before you fly it and just kind of soaking that in, like, holy moly, I'm going to launch to space on that thing today. And then getting on the elevator and riding up to the 195-foot level, which is where that crew access arm was for the space shuttle to get you to the hatch and getting your final gear on. And somewhere in between there, you have like a little potty break. There's a um, this little kind of metal toilet area on the, on the launch pad where, you know, the tradition is before you go um, uh, get into the vehicle, you go have one last uh, rest break. And, and that was fun. You can imagine those orange suits, you've gotten all suited up and now you're having to get that rubber zipper thing down the back. And, you know, for a woman, especially for the men, it was kind of designed for you guys, not so much for the chicks. And so that was, that was, I think that's kind of a test. Okay. If, if you can get out of the bathroom and be back sealed up in your suit the way you're supposed to be, then you're good to go. <clears throat> and then, yeah. And then after that, you all go over and they kind of take you in sequence, depending on which seat you're sitting in, to strap you in. And before you enter the the white room, that that crew area um, for the final suit up, they there's this old phone at the launch pad too. I mean, it looks like one of these big old dial phones, um, where the handset is just like it's almost comical. It's like it's too big. <laughs> I don't know why. And it's like your head is too small when you you know hold it up to your head. <laughs> And you could call your family from the launch pad before going and um, strapping in. And so you do that and then get in and get all the rest of your gear on. You know, they put the parachute on you and all this stuff. And, um, and, uh, and there was a camera inside that white room. That's what they call the, that area. And you, you knew your family would be watching that. So I had like a whole series of hand signals uh, made up with my son to, you know, tell him I loved him, you know, and we had this whole series of the okay sign, pound in your chest, you know, peace sign kind of thing that he knew the, he knew the sequence. And then you get strapped in 
And I'll tell you, you know, you're out there a couple of hours before launch. And so they get you all snuggled into your seat and you're laying on your back. And, you know, the crew doesn't get involved with the countdown, really actively involved until about 20 minutes before launch. So I remember napping and, um, and then waking up and, you know, just being like ready to go and still not believing that it might happen. And, and then getting into that countdown, pretty, pretty incredible. And what's the actual launch like? Like, is it a rough ride in the <laughs> shuttle or? It's a pretty dynamic ride in the space shuttle. I think if any airplane was shaking like the space shuttle shook on the, you know, in those first two and a half minutes when the boosters are attached, you would really seriously worry about it coming apart. Um, you know, so you're on the launch pad. You've been laying on your back there for a couple hours. You finally get down into that 10, 9, 8, you know, what we all think of as the countdown. And that's when you start thinking, oh, holy moly, I might actually go to space today. And it's 10, 9, 8, 7, at 6 seconds on the shuttle. That's when all the fuel started flowing from that big orange tank down to the three little main engines on the back of the orbiter. And I always thought that would be like really, really rough, you know, that you'd really notice that. That, that would be like, oh, yeah, here we go. And yet it was just kind of this rumble, rumbly feel. And because of the configuration of the space shuttle, you know, it was straight up and down, but the engines on the back of the orbiter are kind of at an angle, you know, aft. And so all that fuel starts floating or flowing, the engines light. And then at that second, the whole stack of the space shuttle, and we're at the very tippy top, right? So that tippy top part of the space shuttle would rotate, like rotate forward. It tipped like 10 feet forward. And that NASA had a technical term called the twang maneuver, was this twang maneuver. So it tipped forward and then perfectly timed that when it got back to vertical, that was zero and the countdown. And that's when those two big white solid rocket boosters lit. And that's when the reality of 7 million pounds of thrust underneath you <laughs> like really hits home. It, it's, it's like you get smacked from behind, feels like three of you are starting to climb on top of you because of the acceleration, and you are shaking. I mean, shaking like I've never imagined, you know, that I could shake. And I've looked at the cockpit video, and yeah, it shows us shaking and kind of bouncing around and stuff, but it does not capture what I remember feeling, like my insides just feeling like jello and starting to feel like I weighed three times as much as I do because of the acceleration and and this big smile comes across your face probably is bigger bigger than the one when they tell you you know you got assigned to the mission and then I mean it's like you're automatically reaching out to high five the person next to you and there's a little woohoo you know you want to be professional but this little like woohoo comes out and <laughs> you're I mean I think as humans your body has to respond to this energy right that's lifting you off the planet and um, two minutes go by, the boosters separate, big bang, big flash, and then the shaking stops, but you still feel really heavy. And then another six minutes go by, the orange tank separates, big bang, big flash, and then you are in space, orbiting the planet, you know, from zero to 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half minutes. And it is a blur. You remember like the sky going from blue to black, you remember the shaking, you remember you know, the job you have to track the systems and, you know, be ready in case something goes wrong. But holy moly, it's like a blur that that much, that eight and a half minutes could have gone by so quickly. It's got to be in, incredible running that 
that gamut of, of G-forces, feeling the multiple Gs, acceleration, and said all the noise, all the cacophony. And then that once that's sort of cut off in those stages, now it's zero G. And something I've always wondered, like how how close does the experience in the what the the KC-135, the Vomit Comet, or other zero G aircraft where they do that simulated zero G on uh, in Earth flying the parabolas? How close does that come to the sensation that you have once you're in uh, in orbit? It's it's reminiscent of what it feels like, you know, just this ability for your body to move in three dimensions, to fly, to float certainly gives you a sense of what it's going to be like, but um, without the extended time of it, where that's just the environment you're in the entire time you're in space, where you float, you fly, you move, you roll, um, it, it kind of teases you with it, I think. Um, I highly recommend it, you know, if, if you get the chance to do one of those zero-g flights um, where you can do multiple parabolas to have, you know, like 20, 25 seconds of a time of floating and moving that way. I, I definitely recommend it, but it just teases you. You got me wanting to do that now. Yes, so. you need <laughs> to do that. You need to do it. Um, I guess a two-part question was, what were what were the mission objectives uh, that you uh, undertook while, you, while you're up there, and, and what were also some of the fun things you did? Well, um, so I flew up on, on my first flight, I flew up on the Space Shuttle Discovery, and that, that crew, that crew that was there for two weeks, they had a mission for sure. There was uh, a logistics carrier that came up, so there were a lot of supplies uh, and equipment that were coming to the station, and a bunch of science and hardware and even trash that was coming, coming back uh, on the vehicle. There were certainly assembly activities that went on. I did my first spacewalk during the time when that um, crew was uh, my only spacewalk. Um, while that crew was still docked and with one of those crew members and we pulled off a, a broken ammonia tank and then installed a new one and pulled some other science off the station to send back to the ground with the space shuttle. Um, so assembly and repair. And in, in Included in any mission, there's going to be some mix of science activities. And on board the space station, that's the primary role, is the science that's going on up there in the laboratory where, you know, it's really cool. We get to take gravity out of the equation, and that allows us to look all these things that we thought knew, knew a lot about already in a whole new way, and to discover new things about stuff we don't know anything about. Um, and in pretty much any area of science that you can imagine, uh, which is really cool to be part of that, you know, knowing that everything you're doing there is ultimately about improving life on Earth. And, and then on my second flight, which was the final flight of the Space Shuttle Discovery, um, we went back to the space station and only there for two weeks. And I, I think I might have told you, Chris, before, you know, they had to pull my clawing hands off the hatch to get me back in the shuttle to come home. <laughs> Definitely not long enough <laughs> on board the station. But again, a mix of science, a mix of maintenance and assembly on the station. We brought up the final U.S. module um, for the space station on that flight and um, some other cool stuff like Robonaut and other experiments that were going to happen on the station. And um, so that was cool. But um, the whole experience is fun. You know, the work is fun there. You're, you're in this completely different environment and hopefully appreciating it the entire time you're there, that every time you move, you're floating. You're, I mean, you are flying. And um, 
I used to have dreams about that. I don't know if you guys have this dream where, and I had this from as a kid all the way through until I flew in space and I've never had it again, but where you run in your dream, like you're running, running, running and jumping to try and fly yourself, you know, to just fly all by yourself. And I remember those dreams being really satisfying or really frustrating if it didn't work, <laughs> you know? Right. And um, I've never had that dream again since flying in space. I guess my body knows that feeling now. Um, so, yep, the floating, the flying is fun. Um, the chance to, I don't know, just float around the dinner table with your crew and eat like in this completely different configuration is fun. Uh, I painted while I was in space. You know, that was fun. I had crewmates who played musical instruments and wrote poetry and you know, so there's that human in the human space flight, I think, that we bring with us. Um, but all of it, it, it's really cool that all of it is fun, and yet you're part of something that you know is really worthwhile, too. I mean, I honestly believe all the work we're doing there is, you know, not just to help us explore further off the planet, but to help us improve life here on Earth. Well, and speaking of, of uh, sort of Coming back to Earth, one of the things that that fascinates me about your career, Nicole, is that um, I, I described it to our producer Christina before we we got on today. Is you have a very tall career. It's not only you've spent time uh, in space, an extensive amount of time in space, but you spent some time at the bottom of the ocean as well. Can you talk about that for just a just a moment? Let us know what that experience was all about. Yeah, I mean, very simply, that was, I think, um, the best preparation for what it was going to be like to live and work in space, especially for an extended period of time. And and we joke as astronauts, it's like, oh, we get to go live and work in inner space to learn how to live and work in outer space. And there are so many parallels to it. Um, you know, I spent 18 days living on the Aquarius undersea habitat, which is an undersea laboratory. It's about the size of a school bus sits at about 60 feet underwater off the coast of Key Largo, and um, incredible. I mean, you're in this extreme environment where once you're down there for an hour, you can't swim safely to the surface because your body's so saturated with nitrogen that you have to, with your crew, figure out how to deal with anything that might go wrong there at 60 feet and, you know, get into a safe configuration that way and work with your topside team to solve the problems. And so just like what you would do on a spaceship in space where you're working with mission control on the ground and working with your crew in space to you know, get things in a safe configuration in the space environment because you can't just hop in your spaceship anytime you want and, and come home. And I am so thankful for that experience to, um, I think even on a bigger scale, to have... Uh, I don't know, just this vantage point to appreciate Earth in a whole new way, to be kind of wrapped inside of it, you know, the, the whole ocean wrapping around you and get to experience that, you know, all of this stuff that's going on under the surface that we don't necessarily take into consideration in our daily lives. And, and then to go from that to kind of wrapping around the planet where you're in space and, you know, in more of a, a macro view, um, looking at the planet as a whole, you know, very, very blessed, very thankful for that opportunity. Well, that's really a remarkable range of perspectives. I mean, most of us, it's, it's almost like the old sort of flatland story. Most of us are just living kind of in two dimensions, just sort of wandering around here on the surface, but you've been down underneath and, uh, and seen it from above. I mean, what, um, with that in your, 
with that in your background, you've, you've retired now uh, from NASA. Um, what do you, what do you do to, to, to challenge yourself or what do you do now to keep, to keep yourself engaged? Um, it would be easy to imagine that you'd say, well, I've been in space. I lived underwater. Now that this is boring. <laughs> it's not boring. I, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> and you know, it isn't. And I, I, um, I appreciate the question. And I, you know, I kind of look at it like, um, you know, when I was living underwater doing that mission, that training, there was still no guarantee I'd ever go to space. Right. And it was, it was like, okay, how do I take this experience that I've had living in this really unique environment for 18 days under the ocean. Um, and yeah, apply that to how I'm going to live and work in space, but how can I share it in other ways, right? How can I, you know, not just the pictures of it, but what we're doing there and why it's important that we appreciate what's happening under the surface, of the, you know, the ocean, how that affects our daily lives. And, um, and then, yeah, apply it to what um, I'm going to need to know when I, I travel in space, if I ever get to do that. And I kind of look at it like, um, you know, when I retired from NASA, I, I want, I, I wanted, I want to, to share the experience in a meaningful way. And so I've been trying to find ways to do that. Um, you know, there are things about that experience that will never leave me that I think are important for other people to know, even if you don't get to go to space, right? Like, holy moly, we live on a planet. I mean, how often do we think about that in our daily lives, right? And we should be. Because that the way we live and work on our spaceship in space on the International Space Station, it's just this beautiful model for how we should be living like crewmates here on Spaceship Earth. And the same thing is true if you're living on a, you know, an undersea habitat. The things you have to do and consider on a daily basis are the kind of things we should be aware of and opening up ourselves to in our daily lives and our routines here you know, on the surface of the planet as well. And... Um, I just feel like I'm really fortunate to have these experiences from these unique vantage points to, to try and, you know, open up other people to that. I mean, like, I'm looking out my back window right now, and I'm in awe. I'm like, look, I'm very fortunate to have some water flowing, you know, in the back through this canal, and um, the sky is blue here in Florida. I don't know about you guys up there. It's blue, and it's actually a little cooler today, and I'm like, there is awe and wonder around us everywhere. And it's why I love flying. I mean, I think it's why I was so inspired as a kid. It's like, oh my gosh, my dad is lifting me off the planet. You know, I don't know if I thought about it that way back then. I thought about it more like, oh my gosh, there's my backyard and my pool looks like a little, <laughs> you know, dot and the cars are like little, like smaller than matchbox cars. And oh my gosh, that rival neighborhood, it's not that far away. And, you know, just to be able to appreciate um, what's around us, you know, just by opening up our hearts and our minds to it. Um, you know, you don't have to go to space to, to learn these things. And um, I want everybody to, to know it. And, and holy moly, I mean, to be able to use that experience to do stuff like we're doing with the Space for Art Foundation or to come and talk to groups, you know, at Space Day, you know, at the EAA Museum. I mean, that's, it's not just fun for me, but I hope people are walking away with some little tidbit, you know, some call to action, you know, something that gets them looking at life around them a little differently and hopefully lifts them up in some way. So... It's all cool stuff. And I got a son that I am so excited to see what he does, you know, to be here and watch him and help him and, you know, see what good he brings to the world. That's really exciting for me. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And I'm, I have no doubt that uh, just based on our conversation now, and of course your appearance uh, here in Oshkosh, you've, you've reached a lot of people and, uh, and I think you've accomplished uh, 
uh, more through those things than you might even realize yourself. Um, I have one final question. We are kind of up against the clock here, but okay. um, uh, what advice do you have for other young people? Obviously, you're 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 guiding your son, and he's uh, coming along. Was exposed to cool astronauty stuff, as you said, <laughs> and now working on uh, becoming a private pilot, which which is fantastic to hear. But uh, but what do you say to other young people out there who uh, are are looking to to find some way, whether to directly follow in your footsteps as uh, an astronaut and aquanaut, or just looking for some some bigger way to make a make a difference or or live out something they've always dreamt of doing? I you know well first of all I think it comes down to you know I I, I consider myself fortunate in this way too you know to have been exposed to things that allowed me to figure out what I was curious about, what I was excited about, what I wanted to learn more about, you know, how things fly. I mean, you know, in the simplest form. Um, but that's what I, I'm, I'm always telling kids. I'm like, gosh, pay attention, you know, pay attention to the things you're discovering that you enjoy and let them guide you. Let them guide you to the people that will, you know, want to share what they know about that you know, the kinds of opportunities that open up through that, you know, that experience, that those conversations, uh, you know, when I, whenever I hear people talking about want, you know, that don't think they can learn to fly or want access to flying or hope they can fly someday, I'm like, oh my gosh, go out to your local airport. Air, airplane people want to talk about airplanes. They want to share, you know, the joy of flying with you and to know that there's groups like EAA and others out there that will you know, that have a pathway to providing, you know, access for kids to, you know, experiences in the airplane and out of the airplane that have to do with aviation. Um, you know, that's just so fantastic. And it's available. And they just need to be aware of it and, and know it. But they've got to kind of go to their gut, like, what am I, what, what am I excited about? And pay attention to that. And then, you know, every other area, like, you know, just like aviation, there are, there are other groups like EAA and stuff that, you know, whether it's art or some other area of science or medicine or whatever it might be that kids are excited about where you can get um, mentorship in some way that will, I'm convinced, open up opportunities for you. That's wonderful advice and, that's, and, uh, and timeless too, I might add. So, Nicole, well, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. This has been uh, a terrific episode. The time is, has really zipped by I i'm a rambler at, no not at all i'm looking down at my notes and thinking uh okay when do we schedule parts two through ten i would love to uh, i would love to just keep going and going and going but again we really appreciate it uh and we also of course appreciate everybody out there who's listening uh it takes the time to uh, to tune in and tell your friends about uh, the green dot podcast uh, we really appreciate those who head over to iTunes or Google Play or anywhere else where you consume your podcast and leave us a review. We love getting feedback on the posts that go up for each episode at inspire.ea.org or by email at feedback at ea.org. And it's only because we've gotten uh, wonderful positive feedback and good, strong reviews all along that we've been able to uh, continue and keep these episodes going. So thanks again to everybody out there listening. Once again, thank you, Nicole, for joining us here virtually, just as you did in person just recently. My pleasure. Well, we, we really do appreciate it. And we look forward to catching up to everyone else out there the next time you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>